in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson from right here in the steel city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, sir? Pretty salty today. It's uh, We're recording in the past, but it is NFL playoff time, and it did not go my way. Well, the Steelers haven't played yet, and uh, but I can at least say we made it in the playoffs longer than the Cowboys did, so I've got that to hang my hat on, at least. So I, I think we'll be joining you in the out club soon. So anyway... From this My team Spokane. didn't even make the playoffs. There you go. From Spokane, Washington, here we have Mr. Brian Fry. How you doing, Brian? I uh, can't can't be salty with something I don't have. So there you go. Salt free, low sodium, low sodium for you. All right. Well then, let's let's get going here. So, what movie do you treasure, but the general public does not seem to agree, Brian? I have a plethora of these, as my wife uh, reminded me earlier today. Uh, in fact, she really wanted me to put, um, she wanted me to bring up Mad Max Fury Road because she's very infamously said that it's the worst movie of all time. But I uh, get, liked that one. Oh, yeah. I agree. And, and so did the Academy. So I was like, well, I can't really use that one, hon. Only you hated that. Um, so I went, uh, I've got a, I've got a quick little smattering here. I've got 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas, 6.6 on I. Uh, 6.6 on IMDb, 42 on Metacritic, Hot Tub Time Machine, 6.4 oh. on on IMDb, 63% on Metacritic, and Hackers, 6.2 on IMDb, 46 on Metacritic. Which we have covered that one. And I love all of those movies. And I, I I assure you that if we do this long enough, we will do Hot Tub Time Machine and 13th Warrior as well. well I need to be there. I need to be there for those. So hot tub time machine. I, I don't know. I feel like despite what your ratings say, I, I feel like I talked to so many people who like this movie. So I'm not going to, I think that one. Well, I brought up hot tub time machine to Jess while I was trying to like put this together. And she goes, fury road had a better rating than hot tub time machine. Hot tub time machine was amazing. And I was like, Oh, all right. Nobody. Well, how about you, Chad? What is a movie that you like and treasure that, not everybody does. Uh, well, according to your list, basically all of my top 10 horror movies. But I'm going to go with Troy. I will go to my grave defending the movie Troy. It is stupid and it is fun. And I don't know what I didn't do the academic work that Brian did. Bravo. But uh, I, I have to imagine it's in the 40% somewhere like that movie gets lambasted constantly. I'm curious, Chad. Did you like Alexander? Why? Why? You know exactly the answer to that. I hate Alexander. That is okay. Uh, no, I, I could. So the, I feel me, like we've made a of Troy is fifty three percent from the critics. To your point, Chad, but the audience is 
redeeming at 73%. Wow. Wow. Well, the yeah. 7.3 7, 7. on, uh, on uh, IMDb. The critics, yep. the critics at least certainly would be uh, fit, fit this category for sure. And mine, you know, I have a, I have a number of them and I, I'm like Chad. I like Mike, but in, with comedy, I mean, I like a lot of comedies that sometimes people don't necessarily like, but I mean, one that I really appreciate is, is Envy uh, with Ben Stiller and Jack Black. Uh, Amy Poehler's in this one as well. Uh, it's a 2004 movie. Uh, it gets a 4.8 from IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes says maintenance in progress. So I'm, I'm positive it's not well looked upon, though. I'm oh, sorry, 8%. Oh, yeah, I, here it goes. 8% critics rating on, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and 27% on audience score. So I very artfully sidestepped that film. Well, the critics and most of the public would say you should, but I would say that you shouldn't. So, all right. What's the last movie you saw? Chad. I watched the English dub of Howl's Moving Castle. And if you like Mm. Studio Ghibli films, this is one of, if not the best English translations. I just, I didn't have the time to read subtitles. They're probably best watched in the original language. But if you want a great English dub, this is the one to go to. I do want an English dub every time. I don't know. Always. Don't do that. And Brian, how many, what's the last movie you saw? Uh, after our sidebar conversation on Facebook Messenger about Ed Harris, I went back and rewatched The Abyss. Nice. Oh, yeah, great. It's a great, yeah. great movie. The last movie I saw was Kung Fu Panda 3. So, the, fun was had. Yeah, the, fun was had. The, what is it? The Elite Five or, or whatever they are? They're barely in that movie. The, the, yes, it's true. They get turned into jade soldiers for the bad guy. So, um, you know, it's a different kind of movie. So, I don't know. I had fun. Grant liked it. But what movie are we doing today, Chad? It's my dealer's choice from 1948, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. All right. This stars Humphrey Bogart, Walter Houston, Tim Holt, and Bruce Bennett. Comes out in 1948. So we got an old one here today. Budget. $2.5 million. It only grosses $2.3 million domestically. It certainly makes it back over time. And this is not a box office smash, as I mentioned. This, this is one of those ones that the critics really liked. It did well in award season. So uh, we'll get to that in a minute. And then over time, its reputation has only grown. So this is one of those interesting, I wouldn't say it's a cult classic, but it's a slow-growing love for this movie. Uh, the number one movie in 1948 was The Snake Pit. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes, as I mentioned, 100%. They all love it. And the audience score, not far behind it, 93%. So this is a resoundingly well-loved movie. The Academy Awards liked it as well. They gave Best Director to John Huston, Best Supporting Actor to Walter Huston. They are related. Uh, Walter Huston is John Huston's father. So we have a Best Supporting Actor also going to Walter Houston here and the best screenplay goes to this as well from the Oscars. So three Oscars here. It gets an additional nominee for best picture. It lost to Hamlet, which is the Lawrence Olivier version. So stiff competition, best golden, sorry, golden globe winner for best picture, best supporting actor, Walter Houston, again, best director, John Houston, again, BAFTA award winner for best film of any source. 
and National Board of Review Awards winner for three of them, Best Supporting Actor to Walter Houston again, Best Screenplay, and one of the top 10 films of the year to it. The Writers Guild of America Award winner, the Writers Guild of America Awards nominee to John Houston for Best uh, Written Drama, and the New York Film Critics Circle Choice Awards Best Film and Best Director, John Houston. A lot of things here, and the AFI loves this one too. 98, they named it the number 30 movie of all time on the top 100 movies. It is the number 67 thrills movie. They came back and revisited this one at 2007, and it stayed right even at number 30 in their revisited top 100. It is nominated for the best villain for Fred C. Dobbs. He didn't quite make that list, but in the number one, sorry, in the number one, sorry, in the 100 movie quotes, number 36, badges, we ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges, which is weird because I feel like this movie is misquoted heavily, and I have always heard badges, we don't need no stinking badges. So I would say it's one of the highest misquoted movies of all time, but uh, that would be the actual quote. A lot of stuff here. Chad, had you seen this one before? No, I am probably the least educated on Westerns. So this was one when I was choosing a dealer's choice. I was really torn between Seven Samurai, which is very, very long, and Russell has a short attention span for subtitles. It is in Japanese. This one is not in Japanese, so I chose this movie. Okay, okay. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I will watch Seven Samurai. I, I hear good things on that yes, movie as yes, well. Yes, I do want to. I want to watch that very badly. We should make it happen. I think we should. I think Dustin certainly might need to be in attendance for that one too. I, I will deal with, do it on a dealer's choice where you're not involved. <laughs> I would like to do it. I, I would. I will read the subtitles. If it has a dub, I will dub it though. So, it does uh, not. It, it's three hours of subtitles. That's brutal. Why wouldn't they dub that? They've had years to do this. So <sighs> anyway. But, Chad, what made you pick... You said you narrowed it down to two. What made you pick this one? Honestly, I tried... I This is the hardest combination. And in, I think I failed, and we'll hear later from Brian. But picking for Brian Fry and Russell Guest together, their Venn diagram is very, very small. While it does seem to include Hot Tub Time Machine, that really was not the genre I was trying to go for. So I, I was trying to pick a darker movie for Brian, and I was trying to pick an old movie for Russell, because regardless of whether it's a good movie or not, if it was made in the 40s, it's like a two-star boost for Russell Guest. <laughs> I don't know if that's always true, but we do cover a lot of good movies from the 40s, so that's fair. I don't know. So, yeah. Uh, did it go? Did this go down for you well, given that this was your first watch? I enjoyed it. I have a friend that likes Westerns quite a bit. He hadn't seen it, so I did recommend it to him. We'll see how it goes if he does, if he is able to catch it. He's more of the spaghetti Western style and uh, some of the lighthearted. This is a different tone than that. So uh, I enjoyed it, though. I thought it was very unique. Yeah, it was unique. Now, Brian, how about you? I, I, as Chad alluded to, this one might not have hit for you. Um, so yeah, uh, gosh, I'm trying to not let the fact that we could be doing seven samurai right now, taint the fact that we're doing this instead. Um, oh gosh, I dude, if we'd done seven samurai, uh, this, I would be a completely different person. We'd be having um, the opposite conversation. We would be Why having the opposite no conversation. English dub? 
Um, so uh, this is my first time seeing this. And as a story, I'm going to have some nice things to say about this. As a story, I thought it was very good. I had some, um, I had the, the issues I had were more just things that vexed me and it probably won't be nearly as bad for other people. And it, it's, it's kind of like hitting the wrong note. Some people notice it more than others. And, and for me, it was a very auditory issue I had with this movie. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, uh, you know, we'll get into it when we start you know, critiquing everything, but uh, it, it wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen, but it's probably not something that uh, actually I take, you know, I was going to say it's probably not something I'd watch again, but I take that back. I also had to watch this movie. I've been ill for 14 days now. And I am not in the greatest of spirits. So I might actually give this movie another shot when I don't feel like crap, just in case that tainted anything. Yeah. And when the Colts make the playoffs, as you mentioned. And the Colts make, yeah. I, I have to wait until the Colts make the playoffs and I'm not sick. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, think it does, I think it demands a second watch. I usually try and watch these movies twice that we study. I did not have time for this this time. But I got to say, in one watching... This one went down for me pretty well. I was a I was a fan of this one. So your your sensing of things from the '40s that I just like this one worked for me. What I thought was really interesting, we'll talk about here. Stylistically, we have a western, but we also have a noir, and that is an interesting combination for me. I looked into it, and at the time, this was a common thing. They they occurred. This is one of the best ones to offer that crossover between that noir and that western from this era so that's really interesting to me i think the acting performances are dynamite on this one and i gotta say i am not super well versed in westerns i think as a podcast all five of our hosts aren't necessarily deep deeply entrenched in the western genre so i'm discovering them as we go along and i don't know why i had this thing against them but i'm slowly starting to tear it down i used to sit there and go like western we got to eat our vegetables, you know? We have to cover everything. That's what we try to do here. Not this one. This is this is an enjoyable one for sure. Um, I would highly recommend it. So I, it went down well for me. I did go on a Western kick after this. I did watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is rated very, very high. I think it is way overrated. Did you watch but, the first two movies that feed into it? I, I did not. No, I didn't watch any of the... Uh, for a few dollars more, fistful of dollars, anything like that. I will say watching that movie was a revelation of, oh, that's where that sound effect or that's where that musical cue came. Oh, yeah. Like when you think Western, it is those musical cues. So I do feel slightly more educated. That Dollars trilogy is fantastic, by the way. Uh, the third one is the longest one and by far the most ambitious. I could actually see you possibly knowing your proclivities, Chad. You might prefer the first two more they're simpler they're quicker and a little more action-based i might i i think my issue is going to reside with spaghetti westerns okay i I feel like that genre usually if if there's the italian style of director be horror or be it apparently western i'm not a huge fan of it interesting so jad prefers to hold the spaghetti on his westerns correct yes okay well, you have no spaghetti here, so that helps. Yes. Just a lot of gold. All right. Well, there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so you don't want to have this movie spoiled for you. This is a classic, so definitely check it out. We will be back after these messages. 
Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. Right, this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Chad, for those who haven't seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre since 1948, do you want to refresh people's memories? Fred Dobbs and his fellow contractor, Curtin, are broke drifters down in Mexico who overhear an old man named Howard telling tales of striking it rich, prospecting for gold. Dobbs and Curtin decide to go all in and recruit Howard to help find their fortune. Initially content with a small score, as the gold piles up, Dobbs becomes increasingly paranoid and begins to accuse the other two men of treachery. A Texan by the name of Cody follows Curtin back to their camp and demands to be cut in on the deal. Dobbs votes to have him killed, but bandits under the leadership of Gold Hat arrive and a gunfight ensues. Cody is killed and we find out he's left his wife and child for a chance at bringing back great wealth to them. Howard and Curtin agree to give their share to Cody's widow once this is all over, but Dobbs refuses. Howard is called away by a local tribe to help treat a sick boy, and the trust between Dobbs and Curtin disintegrates, leading Dobbs to shoot Curtin and abscond away with the gold. Dobbs, however, runs into Gold Hat once again and is murdered. The bandits believe the bags of gold dust to be dirt and discard them. Curtin does survive and is nursed back to health by Howard, who then aids Curtin in tracking down Dobbs. The bandits are captured and executed, and a small boy tells Howard and Curtin where the discarded goods are located. The two men find the bags have been opened, and the dust is scattered to the wind. They eventually laugh at their misfortune before agreeing to amicably part ways. All right. Wow. So, there's a lot that happens in this movie. There are many turns that go on here. Uh, this movie... Uh, obviously at its first part, which I think it's more than just one thing on the surface. This is a movie about greed initially. And so Chad, this movie's heavy in foreshadowing. I didn't see all of this coming and certainly not to this degree. Talk about how this was like to watch this unfold for you. It's interesting. You, you right away, get the impression that Dobbs is not a good person. Although I was cheering for him because he just straight up told that little kid who's annoying him, Hey, I'm going to throw this glass of water in your face if you don't quit. And then he does it. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, we're, we're supposed to hate this guy immediately, but bravo. And he, he talks about, okay, I just need this amount of money. He tells Howard, Oh, I need, I don't need 5, that much. Yeah. 5,000. That's all he Yeah, it's, it's a very low amount. And Howard has this big, long speech, which may come up with my superlatives of what gold does to a man and that it just 
It disintegrates Brotherhood. Later on, he talks about bandits. And he warns Dobbs, hey, if the bandits if the bandits don't have to know about the gold, they're going to kill you for your shoes. And so we get that. And there's just great discourse amongst the men and this kind of slow disintegration of Dobbs throughout the movie. So, yeah, there's there's a ton that I think is helped. I did watch this twice. So it is greatly boosted by a rewatch. I can see that because in studying it, I was having a lot of light bulbs go off as I was like, oh, yeah. So I really do want to watch this one again. Now, Brian, you like the darkness and we have a character, the, the protagonist, Humphrey Bogart's character, Dobbs. He's entering the darkness throughout this movie. We didn't I did not expect him to go this dark. I expected him to reemerge from the dark, too. Like I said, so my expectations weren't met. How about you? What was your journey through this like? Um, I So I, I do kind of like the Descent into Madness piece here. Uh, this is very much a film of bad decisions and letting, you know, uh, uh, self-made ghosts control you. Like everything is, is very much that paranoia piece. And I actually do really like that. What I had a harder time stomaching was Bogart's execution of that paranoia. Um, it all came across very whiny to me. And instead of actually going insane, he just sounded like a little wiener. <laughs> and, uh, it, and, and it, it, it I don't literally think has ever said that about Bogart ever. It, it you know what? I agree with Fry here. He, I felt like he is overacting here and it's, there were notes that John Houston got of, Hey, rein your dad in because he's acting circles around Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Yeah. And it took me out of the movie. Like it, it was so obnoxious when he was executing, like it didn't come, it, it came across as petulance, not paranoia. And I wanted the paranoia. I wanted the, you know, the, 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 you know, ticking time bomb. And all I got was, and, and, and it just, oh, it just grated on me. It grated on me terribly. And so you uh, don't like the way he talks. It, it's, it's his execution of the lines that that led down a, a a petulance road instead of a paranoia road. Okay. And, and they were very clearly going for paranoia. What's interesting, though, is Spielberg bases Indiana Jones off of Bogart's performance for Dobbs. Partially, because James Bond is also a template for Indiana Jones and those romps, too, which I would say that you can see the Bond. Yes, a it's a lot so. closer. Yeah. And, and I felt like, like given the other two primary characters and how they are kind of able to, to parody defeat and, and kind of reasonably act toward one another. Like it, it wasn't, I, I actually agree with you guys. I, I, I didn't think he would go far enough to shoot one of them, but because the paranoia piece wasn't, established correctly that when he did end up shooting him, it, it came across as more of a, uh, the weakest member of a gang shooting someone just to prove he could just cause it can do it. And it just, I don't know. I, it, 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 that part did not click with me and it was so essential to the darkness of this film, to the, to the, the greed, just, just, you know, the, the, um, uh, shoot. 
uh, you know, the, the, the gold corrupting his mind. Like it, it just, it, it needed that it, it desperately needed that. And I'm going to recast the crap out of him. Oh man. Well, I'm going to ask a question. We have covered Humphrey Bogart on the Maltese Falcon. If I recall, you were a fan of that movie and mm-hmm. Casablanca. I don't have a problem he, with Bogart. Just say, him and this. He played, he played Rick in Casablanca. Is this an instance of you have been given iconic roles and you have expectations for what you want your Bogart to be. Do you want him to only be that cool, in control kind of guy and this descent into madness, as you pointed out, whether overacted or not? Is this just not what you want from Bogart? Have he has he been typecasted as Mr. Cool in your mind? I, I, that that might have something to do with it, but and, and I understand that this probably isn't a hundred percent possible, but I swear like a dinner conversation with Alfred Hitchcock would have changed his approach to this movie completely. And, and that's what it desperately needed. It's funny you mentioned that because my mind went to Jimmy Stewart in watching this because I had seen Jimmy Stewart. Obviously, it's a wonderful life. This is a more extreme change than what we were undergoing here. Uh, when when we watch when you watch Vertigo, you're like, whoa, I didn't see Jimmy Stewart doing this. This is yeah. this is this is this is a different Jimmy Stewart than I'm used to. And this is a different uh, bogey than we're used to because he he does lose his cool and he's mr cool which obviously dudes at the time wanted to be bogey women loved him as, as well at the time i don't know that all those things necessarily come through this when and certainly not mr sweaty like you know he looks like he smells very bad in making this movie i mean everybody looks like they smell bad in this movie <laughs> so i'm not sure like my, my my biggest question was like was it a thing back in the forties for let's for guys in America to be like, Hey, let's go be losers in Mexico. I like, <laughs> like I've never staked up. Clearly there's a lot of, uh, of Americans down there. There's like one prosperous guy and like 45 homeless derelict guys. And I'm like, was this just a, just a thing? Like what, why are all these guys down there? If I were homeless, I'd rather be homeless in warm, nice weather. I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know. It is so. It seems so strange to me. I was like, "Why? Why are they all there?" It's like a just new a bunch of just a yeah. bunch of expats, man. <laughs> There's the hope of the new life with the as as things are expanding out west. I think to some degree. So sure. Now I do. I do want to say though. There's massive foreshadowing. It wasn't just in the in this. I mean, I love the line earlier when William Houston says, "You know, water can be more precious than gold." That is foreshadowing of things that are to come. There are moments where we see you know, Bogart wanting more money that, that as things come through, there's the distrust of Cody when he comes in and there's all of these wonderful pieces. I have a feeling with further rewatches and Chad, you did get to do a rewatch. I have a feeling this thing's tighter and more rewarding upon second viewings for the things that are to come, because I picked up on some of them just one pass through. I have a feeling again, this thing's not awarded for its writing as well. I have a feeling there's more to it than I even necessarily picked up the first time through. Cause I was just doing the first time basic, Whoa, I didn't see that coming or Whoa. Now there's, now there's these bandits coming. You know, I, every time I was about to settle in, this movie didn't let me get too comfortable. I really liked that. There was always like a chapter to turn in this movie and it, the two hours flew by for me. It's, it's interesting to me. And to your point, I'll, I'll address this, even stuff like the water Cody's crime when he comes to camp isn't so much the trespassing they don't like him but then he takes the water without asking and and then uh you have dobbs flipping out the next drink you take will be (laughs) the next water you have is going to be coming out of bullet holes (laughs) yeah but the 
the takes you both have said, it's interesting to me because I never for a second doubted Dobbs was capable. So I treated this almost like a Poe type movie where this guy is already dangerous and now he's losing his mind. And I, from the Gila monster, that was a very tense scene where Curtin is saying, hey, no, I didn't mean to find your treasure. I'm trying to kill this giant lizard. Chill out. And you can see that Dobbs is, I believed he was going to kill him right then and there. And I was stunned with the restraint. He votes to kill Cody and he absolutely was going to do it until a bunch of banditos show up and save the day, I guess. So his bloodthirst is sated by killing a bunch of banditos. But yeah, he... To me, it was just a threat of this dude's going to kill whoever. Counterpoint to that, though, when they get stiffed, they work very hard. They get stiffed and the guy just tries to get them liquored up to get them to go away. Yeah. And they beat him up, which it's a good fight, by the way. For one dude fighting two guys, he puts up a very good fight in fairness. McCormick, he looked, yeah, he, he was tough. Yeah. Like this, the guy was, the yeah, guy held his own pretty well, to be honest with you, because two two tough guys in their prime fighting him. I was surprised it went as well for him as it did, but anyway, he loses and Bogart takes only what he's deserved and throws the rest of the money on his face. Right. And that is a moment of, you know, that's a moral spectrum to some degree. Like I, I'm, I beat you up. Yes. But I mean, this is right. Like this fair is fair. And you've given, given all ample opportunity to be square. And this is the wild west after all. So, you know, he, he gets what's his and he's fair and he leaves him for his and probably teaches him a lesson about don't do that to people. And no, that dude's doing it again. To oh, the next maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's my point. We have a transition in Dobbs. He's changing. Like, so on the moral spectrum, you know, he might not be as good as when we meet Howard. Howard's already lost everything. He's learned all the lessons from past failures and dealing with scoundrels and he has the wisdom of age on his side. So he's, he's, more, he's on the more moral side of the spectrum, so to speak. But I don't know that Dobbs is necessarily, he might even be more moral than Curtin to some degree in the beginning. But boy, it sure doesn't finish out that way. I mean, I would say that Dobbs is more of a villain at the end of this than Goldhat. Goldhat is a renegade and he's a very bad dude for sure. But I mean... Dobbs killed somebody in his own group or tried to kill somebody in his own group. I mean, there's a, there's a Twice. degree of, yeah, there's a betrayal factor with Dobbs that is worse. At least gold hats, you know, appears to be a fun guy to be around. If you're in his posse, you know, he's funny. I mean, he's, you know, he will kill you. He will rob you and do terrible things, but at least he's like, he's, at least he seems like a face having fun doing. And I don't know. So that's my take on that. I, I like that transition. We, we, I think Dobbs changes a lot over the course of this. See, I think that's the problem that I have with like, I, I just feel like if the execution of his, his mental and moral decay had gone better, like it would have been quite a bit better in terms of my, my view of the movie. You needed three movies where the gold related object that he carries around slowly corrupts him to the point of where his faithful companion has to take it from him. That sounds pretty good, Chad. I think you're on to something. It does. There. Somebody should make a trilogy of this in <laughs> only three movies. You just now had a very good idea. So. I mean, whatever's precious to you. All right. <laughs> well, 
I'm going to kick it back then. Walter Houston, father of John Houston, the director here, won an Academy Award for this performance. Is he is he making you any happier on this one, Brian? Yeah, I th- no, I thought he did great. In fact, I really don't have many other ca- uh, casting qualms in this. Oh, he's fantastic. What I brought up earlier, I think, is funny. Where they had to, studio execs are watching this happen, and they're like, "Hey, man, tell your dad to chill a little bit. He's making Bogey look terrible." And yeah. that's that's hilarious to me. It's it's funny that they didn't want to work together. John Houston didn't want to cast his dad. Not, I mean, probably just for the sake of he don't really want to work with family. And now he looks back on it, and he said. It was one of the best times of his life. So that's a sweet memory, too. I'm glad yeah. not only did the casting work out, but they worked out. Because 40s directors, uh, Bogart hated both of them. He said, one Houston is enough, two, two is murder. You know, I think his, I think he likes John Houston because he works with him a lot, for one. And granted, studios can tell you at this point, you're working together whether you like it or not, and you have to go along with it. So it's a different era in Hollywood. But... Uh, Bogar seems to be very uh, respectful and likes working with Houston and what we covered in Maltese Falcon from what I remember. And here too, it's just, he's incredibly particular, which I think a lot of great directors are. Well, he did call this movie the worst piece of, I'll use crap. No, he said, I will be playing the worst piece of crap. Yeah. Like I, like, like as a person, he is a bad person. So, um, which is he is he's, it's it's a he very a bad person yeah. for sure. I just think that the prospector role, I I kept I kept seeing, is this what the prospector in Toy Story two is modeled after? Like you know, the the white beard, like the like the general look of, like I feel like his image has informed future prospectors in just general media. I don't know if it, I don't know if it just comes from him. But this is, uh, I was kind of like, like you were, you were saying, Chad, like I was like, ah, aha, this comes from this. Right. Yeah. The, the badges line I knew from Blazing Saddles. I did not know it from this. It, yeah. It just keeps going farther back. We covered it in UHF. It was there too. Only those were badgers. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it even comes up in uh, the first Bad Boys movie when they're in that, uh, the hair care, she's buying some shampoo and the dude behind the counter uh, sees their guns and he pulls out a gun himself and he's pointed at him and he goes, um, we're police officers. I'm going to reach for my bag. And he goes, badges? You want badges? And he says a bunch of curse words and throws a, like a whole ring of badges. He goes, here, I'll sell you some. <laughs> so that is clearly iconic. I, 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 in watching this, I have to wonder how that line became amazing. This line, this movie's got a lot of good lines in it. So I'm finding it interesting that that one has gone on to live such a large life. I'm often fascinated by that. Like when a movie has so much good going for it, when somebody locks onto one thing, I don't know that if I had just been there in 1948, that I would have locked onto that necessarily being the thing, but I'm with you, Chad. I think it was interesting to see Walter Houston say in his acceptance speech that many, many years ago, I brought up a boy and I said to him, son, if you ever become a writer, try and write me a good part in one of your movies sometime. And by cracky, that's what he did. So uh, that's uh, it's fun to see that he even said that he wanted to make another movie with his son every year after that. Unfortunately, he dies uh, soon thereafter. And I found out more dots connect for me. Angelica Houston is the daughter of John yes. Houston. 
So mm-hmm. it was interesting to see her talking about she didn't really get to know her grandfather. He died too soon for her to get to know him. So this movie's kind of, you know, one of those things where it's kind of interesting that when you're an actor, you live on and your likeness lives on playing characters, not necessarily, but it's one of those things where your grandchildren can see you. And because your father directed the movie, it was special to her. So uh, talented family, first of all, but it's all of those things working together. Like you said, Chad, I mean, Hollywood's full of nepotism, but in this case, everybody's talented. So I just find these stories to be heartwarming, if anything. Yeah, this isn't Will Smith casting his kids and things. Stop forcing them on us. I still like the pursuit of happiness. It's fine. What was that? What was the one with the the sci-fi? After Earth. After Earth. Yeah. Oh, God. That was brutal. Um, Yeah. I derailed the heck out of that like a bandito. I forgot I did lose. What was I talking about? I forgot. I, I, I forgot what we were doing. Hollywood family. nepotism. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, I, Walter Houston appears that he can be speak Spanish in this so smoothly. I love him doing this, and it turns out he just had somebody come speak Spanish, and he memorized the lines. I mean, I guess he's, the guy's a top-notch actor, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, man, I really just assumed he spoke Spanish. It's just everything he's doing, even the jig is great. It's a playwright, Eugene O'Neill, when he was performing this jig from Desire Under the Elms in 1925, you know, production. And that famous dance was just scripted here. And it was his idea to bring it in there. The speed at which he talks. I really like sometimes the speed that old movies have in dialogue. There's a lot more attention given to the dialogue because they have to hang a lot more on it because the effects in the scenery may not always be there as much. I just like the pace. He moves very quickly and there's a smoothness and a crispness that seems, again, wise, but also full of energy. And we, we see that so much. I think it's so funny to see him outpacing these other two guys. Yeah, they seem like a fun family. I read a story about his his dad. I guess he liked pranks. And so the, the dude that played Cody, he has to eat that bowl of soup at, at the fireside, like really guzzle it. And uh, John Houston called for an extra take and then kept making him do it over and over to see how many takes it would make for uh, uh, what's his, Bruce Bennett to just like keel over from drinking this stew and he didn't actually even film any of them. He just, the first take was good enough. He didn't tell him. And then he took a lunch break afterwards, which is just like, that seems like a fun time. We, we keep visiting these 1940s, 1930s movies. And most of the time we're talking about the director and how much of a jerk they are. And it's like this dude abused his actors and his actresses and did all these other scumbag things. I, Maybe you uncovered something, but I didn't find anything. It seemed like that everyone had a pretty good time. He was super popular on Maltese Falcon as well. I don't want to rehash all of that one, but he was running ahead of time. He gave people time in terms of, you know, things were so run things were run so smoothly under Houston with Maltese Falcon that everybody really liked working with him, and there was a uh, a good vibe on that set as well. So, yeah, obviously he makes you look great too. I mean his movies are really, really good. So I, I'm enjoying diving into his works more and more. But Although the studio not, like, just approving it on a heads up, not reading the script at all and saying, yeah, this will probably be a short two-week 
film in Mexico and then it goes over budget by like several months to do <laughs> and the studio just gradually freaking out saying this the fool's gold is out there and then it bombs I feel bad about that well uh, yeah it doesn't necessarily get its return but I feel like they created something important at least at least the uh, Jack Warner said that it was the one of the best movies he had made so he saw the merit in that but it certainly made him feel bad at the time like you said they they pitched a movie that was a lot lower cost and shorter time and easier to make so they implied that they would only be in mexico for a few weeks and you know i believe that this movie took oh shoot five and a half months five and a half months five and a half months to shoot it was more than a month over schedule so it just was uh, overages in terms of cost. I'm sure the cash wasn't cheap either. So uh, it was interesting that uh, some of these quotes, I can see a producer, like he seems like a colorful character, but the the producer, Jack Warner, would throw up his hands and say, yeah, they're looking for gold. All right, mine. Or he came onto the set one day when they were looking for the water. He's like, if that SOB doesn't find water soon, I'm going to go broke. Like I just, I kept reading these quotes and imagining this very colorful character probably he was really angry the whole time that his producer Henry Blank and John Huston had deceived him, but uh, you should read your scripts if you're going to commit millions of dollars to them. So uh, these are fry quotes, by the way, I, I hope they, uh, I hope they made at least a couple blank check jokes. Yes. Friday. So I can always trust you to commiserate when I'm a bad person. When, when they're reading the letter, from Cody and then it uh, just keeps getting worse and worse. Oh, yeah. Like you start with little Jimmy losing his father and you're like, okay, this is bad. Then how gold isn't worth the pain of separation. And then they go with, we've already found life's real treasure. <laughs> like, yeah, it's I, meant guys, to be this heartbreaking scene and I'm laughing. Home home too. <laughs> well, the thing that, and that's why I brought up, I was like, this movie, it's just a movie of bad choices. Like none of them really should be where they are at that moment. And I don't understand. Like it, it, you know, we talk about things that take you out of a movie. Like, why are you, why are you doing this? Like, just don't they, get it. Because they if everybody stopped. Asked, logically, you don't have a movie. It's a very boring movie. Otherwise, if nobody. I'm just saying the letter, they could have stopped at the first line, but they keep twisting. It's like left your wife. Okay. And we get, maybe she's attractive. Like curtains interested immediately, but then, okay. He's got a little kid knife twist a little more than gold. Isn't worth the pain of separation knife twist. And then the cheesy hallmark. We've already found life's real treasure. Yeah. Gosh. I I like these moments. And I like the moment where the kid is my, my first thought was when, when um you know howard goes to take take see after the boy and the by the um the natives there i couldn't believe the film was going that direction and I, I for a moment i was like do we need to do this i was pretty invested in what was going on now we're splitting off from the group and what's this all about well once again it's one of those things where the character is choosing to leave his gold his shares and the trust of other people because there's something bigger at hand here a lot bigger at hand and he found it very fulfilling himself. And obviously he was the medicine man of the whole tribe and he got to be their whole legislature in the end. It's, it's, it, it, it works its way back around to being a very satisfying resolution for him. But there's a moment again, 
chat of like this movie gives you moments of realizing there's things that are more important than yeah, that. Kudos to that kid. And you're not going to hear me say that very often, but that kid somehow managed to not laugh through that entire scene when they're like lifting his, his arms up and yeah like what is that i will say the medical i was gonna say i don't know if jessica watched this one with you brian but i don't know what the medical she merits of lifting somebody's hands and pumping them yeah. over your head is. i was kind of like tequila <laughs> yes rage rising urge to kill rising your wife is just like, that does nothing that may hurt yeah <laughs> i also i also had this like I'm gonna overlook that, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's a very ineffective way to provide. Somebody. This is the best 40s could offer when no cocaine was available to just force. Well, people. yeah, yeah, and, and and I gotta tell you, I mean, if you think about you know the 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 beeswax and camel spit that would have been used otherwise, I mean, tequila and raising his arms over his head. I mean, I think any, anything you can kind of roll your dice on. Right. You don't have to do the YMCA on an unconscious kid's body, though. Like, that does nothing. <laughs> I think it was interesting. We almost got Ronald Reagan in this movie. Henry Blank, the producer, originally wanted John Garfield for the, uh, for the Tim Holtz role of Curtin. But Garfield was unavailable. And then Houston wanted Ronald Reagan. That would have been so, great. Yeah. I actually really don't know him as an actor. So I generally just kind of go and like, well, that would have been interesting just because I still haven't watched a Ronald Reagan movie. So I don't know what he's like as an actor, to be honest with you. He's good. He's charming. It's there's a reason he became president. He's handsome and charming. Well, Tim Holt's not really a big time actor. I'm, I find it interesting when you look into his history, he's kind of like a B movie kind of guy, like a B Western movie guy. Like how does he get into here with these two heavyweights, but he holds his own. He's awesome. I just, I find it interesting that he worked his way in there. He wants to plant peaches. Yep. I just want an orchard. Right? That's that's a great dream, though. It's like, what are you going to yeah. do with your money? I, I want peach trees. I really liked it when he got the gun himself later and he turned it on on Bogar's character, Dobbs, and he's saying, like, now that the shoe's on the other foot, I'm still going to hold on to his money for him. And I thought that was like one of those points, and you're right, the paranoia was taking over Dobbs so much at that point. It's just like, oh, man you're just you you just want to see problems at this point and you're right like the, the descent and the madness and the paranoia have all come like there's he's already to a point of no return so uh that's what drives him to stay awake so much better unfortunately he's he's so unhinged like that so i don't know it's uh gosh i i really like i really like those scenes so like i said when i didn't trust the script initially like what are we doing here by taking you know prospector howard out of it because i really like him don't yeah. do that to this movie but then every time i questioned it it was just always rewarded you know even when i brought when they, when they brought cody in, i thought that was very exciting the discussions that they were having i thought that was an interesting standpoint of like what if somebody else does come up to here that was a scenario that never even entered my head and the, it, un, it unfolded a lot of problems i am surprised curtain voted to shoot him though that that is one thing looking back on it that sits there and goes like curtain's more moral than dobbs and he finds more value in life as he goes through here. But at that part of this movie, he hasn't come to the disconnect with the gold. He's choosing the gold over human life. And I do find that surprising when I step back and think about that. I don't know about a second viewing or third viewing, but I think Curtin's one of the more complex characters that I would really enjoy watching and paying closer attention to again. I mean, I Poor get Curtin. it. 
dude follows them to camp. They don't know anything about him. He insists on being cut in and then just basically dares them to kill him. He is pushing. So it, it is like, it is very unwestern of this western for them to have not shot him upon arrival. Right. I like, I can't imagine in the dark of night approaching three strange men demanding a share of their hard work and then saying shoot me if you dare and it ending well for me. Like this dude just right? he he's got some brass ones. He does, but he's got a couple of things on his side. He said that I'll let you keep all the money that you've found thus far. He will increase their labor force, which it is hard work. And he's saying he'll only take a share from there for, you know, going there forward. These are more reasonable things to say. And you're right. If he goes back and says, if I found you, they did not necessarily get a claim on the land, which that process was not 100% clear to me with how prospecting and gold worked in you know the gold rush era but it was the explanation worked well enough for me i got i got the whole point of like these guys probably should have declared this is you know land that they could actually mine instead of just saying like "Eh, i'm gonna dig here which is totally what they did and even howard kind of alluded to like "Eh, nobody's got time for that you know so we're gonna do well yeah he, he makes a pretty good point on why they didn't go the claim route right so right so, again, tight writing. I mean, things that seem frivolous and at moments end up becoming massively meaningful. And, and it's probably because this thing's written off of a very popular and well-liked book by B. Tavern, which is a pen name. I think it's interesting John Houston was so interested in this author throughout the process. He didn't meet the author himself. He sent his intimate friend, Hal, Gr- Hal Croves, to serve as a technical advisor and translator for $150 a week. But everybody felt like Hal was B. B. Traven. So interesting. One of those things of this mysterious who's B. Traven kind of things. Nobody ever really nails it down for sure. Are we sure this isn't B. Traven? Like B. Trey? B. Traven? Maybe. I don't uh, know. Maybe it's a coincidence, but maybe there's a pun there. It's possible. What are I, you? What, what are you doing, Dave? Yes. Oh, how? John Houston's wife, Evelyn Keys, was certain Croves was definitely the mysterious author. Though she kept saying, like, he keeps giving himself away by saying, like, I, when he should be using phrases like he. So, I, I find that a funny story. I think that would have been an amusing thing to have been on the set for. Uh, who's this mystery man kind of thing? So, even if it's not him, it's a funny thing to think about. Agreed. So, Brian, do you like what John Houston is doing here as a director in adapting this story? I know you have some bogey issues here, but do you like the presentation, storytelling, pacing, and everything else that Houston's doing? I, I think this is this is the bones of this movie are essentially good. Um, I I think that the story. I'm I'm actually interested in reading the book now. Uh, that I could probably put my own inflections on it might be something I enjoy quite a bit more. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't really lay any of this at John Houston's feet. Any, any of my issues, I shouldn't say there's, there's clearly, uh, it was cl- clearly critically well, uh, well uh, received. So I, I recognize that it might be just my issues and not issues with the film. I'm in the Dustin camp. Dustin has his tight 90 and this is not a tight 90. 
So there, there are some things that could probably be whittled down here that we didn't necessarily need. There's, there's one specific scene that I'd really like to cut and uh, that'll come up. But overall, yeah, I, I'm with Fry. I think he does a magnificent job with everything he's given. And I'm sure the studio was like cast Humphrey Bogart, like put that name out there. Bogart wanted it. He read that John Huston was attached to it and he wanted it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I don't know that you're turning him down in the forties. Um, no, you're not. He's Warner brothers, biggest star. And so when he says, I want it because John Huston is on it and he, he liked the, he liked the, you know, the novel as well. So, you know, like you said, Chad, if he wants it, he's got it. He's, he's at the top of the food chain. So yeah. He started badgering Houston for it right away, even though other people were considered, like you said, it's one of those things where I don't know who the equivalent is now, but I think at some point it probably would have been like if Tom Hanks says, I want this movie, I think Tom Hanks get this, gets that movie at some point. You know? Yeah, but see, you can, ca- you can cast a fabulous actor for a part that's not going to fit them. Uh, see Robert Langdon in every single Tom Hanks is Robert Langdon. Uh, you know, Dan Brown uh movie it 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 cannot work it it, you can have the best actor of all time and he still doesn't fit a specific part and i just don't think bogart fit this part bad hair pieces which is somewhat relevant to this movie or at the very least he needs like have a take two and redo uh you know i'm not saying that he's not capable of playing the part i'm just saying that how he did it isn't right I think the style merger between Western and noir is very interesting. I'd like to see more of these, to be honest with you. I like the noir crime movies of the 40s and the 50s. I like some of these classic Westerns. I did not know that these moods overlapped. So the style of the creator of Maltese Falcon is coming back and making Western. And I've totally felt it. The darkness of the mood was conveyed so well in these feelings. The night scenes feel really good. It's hard to shoot at night back then. And I think we take that for granted. There's movies shot later than this that look like crap at night. And these are really good. The scene where uh, Bogar is, you know, really hot and he's falling apart. Like you could just feel the, the roughness of the landscape. And this is all in black and white too. I think a lot of movies a little bit later than this, I think the Wild West thrives on seeing this brilliant color and we don't have that at our disposal yet and they left the studio there's a lot of this is shot a majority of this is shot in mexico and they went to the field and they really did that themselves and again i've been a champion for doing it this way lots of authenticity of going there and shooting in person both for what it does for in terms of the actors and the feel of the movie but yeah they went to tempico texas sorry they went to tempico mexico and the production was shut down immediately by the local government. And it turns out they hadn't paid off the newspapers, which is apparently what you did at the time. And that uh, they then printed false stories. And so they said that they were doing unfavorable things in the film in terms of how they were casting Mexico necessarily. So uh, I, I, certainly Gold Hat doesn't make it seem like a very nice place to be around. But nevertheless, there's clearly more to the movie than that. There's people who live their lives there and such. So. Well, if you're interested in more modern, uh, like if you want more modern examples of how noir and, and Western kind of comes together, something like Miller's Crossing, Wind River, uh, No Country for Old Men definitely yeah. falls into that. You know, That was the that, one that came to my mind. 
Yeah. I almost feel like No Country for Old Men is so neo-Western. I sometimes lose the Western in it, which it's not. It is a Western. You're 100% right. I start feeling like we're in modern Western. Sure. Which changes the roughness and the frontier nature of it. There's nothing, I think, there's nothing I think, that rough necessarily about modern Western. Necessarily. The, the, the other two definitely do not lose the, the Western aesthetic though, especially something like Miller's crossing, uh, but uh-huh. when, when, wind river too. I think it's wild that this movie is just based on a movie that time period was 25 years ago. This seems like so long ago, but you know, this, this movie was made for like a 1925 setting, I guess. So it's one of those things where, that surprised me. And I'm going to ask a question that doesn't necessarily have to go on the podcast. Am I reading that right? The book is set in 1925. I thought the gold rush was earlier than this. Like this, I was getting earlier than 1925 off of this movie. Is it just well, the 18, way things were then? 1849 is the California gold rush, but that continues for a long time. I mean, that's why they're the San Francisco 49ers, but you discover in the Black Hills, uh, gold. There was a gold rush in the late 1800s, so it's it's not out of question. I think the Black Hills gold rush was like 1893. So yeah, I don't know anything about Mexico's gold rush, but it wouldn't surprise me if it fell behind the U.S. Okay, they do imply that a lot of it's picked over, and everybody is trying to find the more remote spots, so to speak. And like you said, with the claiming process being what it was, so. Maybe it is the end of the era there. So uh, they didn't necessarily boast its time, but it is a period piece for when it's made, which we sometimes lose track of that. Like when we're watching an old movie made from the 40s, there's more distance between us and when it was made than there was between when it was made and when it, the time that the period that they were depicting. So that'll always do a little bit of a time warp for you. Sure. But... Um, Going back to Bogart working with Houston, he was quite fond of working with Houston. He enjoyed his experience on this film too. Bogart just found Houston to be quite the perfectionist. He said there lead to some very grueling, exhausting days on location. Bogart would sarcastically say that John wanted everything perfect. If he saw a nearby mountain that he could serve for some photogenic purposes, the mountain was not good enough. Too easy to reach. They would have to go to a location site with a couple, crossing a couple of streams, walking through snake-infested areas, scorching sun, and it just wasn't quite right. So they had to keep going farther. So I get the gist. We hear this time and time again with James Cameron or with Stanley Kubrick. John Huston wants it his way. And it's a good way to want it because he's really good at what he does. So. Agreed. I did find this one funny, though. Bogart was an avid yachtsman and wanted to make sure that he could go to his yacht race in Honolulu. And he kept bothering him, John Houston, about like whether are we going to be done in time so that I can go to my boat race. And eventually Houston had had enough being badgered and he grabbed Bogart's nose by between his fingers and twisted it hard. And Bogart then didn't badger him again. But uh, that is a that's a uh, wild move. So you said, Chad, you, you, this seems like uh, I think it's not it's not total abuse. Not everybody hated the director, but hey, he, he grabbed the star's nose and just twisted it. So there's that physical abuse. Got your nose. That's far funnier than things that happen in this time period. Like we we covered the Wizard of Oz slightly earlier, and that was awful. Well, this movie fails the Bechdel test. 
in resound. <laughs> like, like, yeah, resound. there's one one attractive woman whose sole point is to be attractive and walk in a what I assume was stunning dress. It's black and white, but she she looked great in it. There are not many parts for women or lines for women or you know moment what? or seconds of movie time. For <laughs> an early western, that may be for the best. <laughs> the, the, there's a there's a pretty girl giving uh, Howard tequila when he's being worshipped yes. as a med- medicine god. That that is true, and he has found his lady friend because he talks about that earlier. Like he wants to find this beautiful woman. And I'm looking at him like uh, you probably should acquire more gold before you pursue that dream. But it worked for him. Apparently, being a doctor helps too. So John Houston's original film depicted Dodd's death as more graphic too. This one I think would be up your alley, Fry. They Houston wanted to actually have a decapitation from the machete chop when Dobbs is actually killed in a prosthetic head rolling down into the water hole. There's a quick shot where the gold hats <laughs> accomplices are reacting to Dobbs, like deheading. And so it's kind of still in there, but I'll be honest with you. I saw the machete go down and I was kind of like, did they kill him? Did they wound him? This is one of those things of this era. They love to shoot people off screen. When Curtin gets shot, I did have a moment of like, wait, what? Like, did you kill Curtin? Because I also was pretty mad at that point of like, we came all this way and you killed one of your three main guys. I'm not sure how I feel about that. And he wasn't as deserving either, necessarily. I was like, I, and luckily he was wounded. And I really liked the fact that he wasn't totally killed. But I, I, all this stuff happening off screen does create some moment of where there's not as much clarity, if you will. 1948, they're just not letting you cut people's heads off on, on the screen, though. Yeah, it's oh, a bummer. Bogart. Yeah, that's that's a shame. I don't I don't see Fry so much as the needed gore hound here. Like that's my territory of I want him to go full Jason on him. He likes but, grit. He likes darkness. I uh I I mean it definitely would have put some some uh finality to uh Bogart in the film. I was going to say plus it's Bogart and Ch- and and Fry and this movie does not like Bogart so him losing his head on this one on screen would certainly if nothing else give him a pleasing Yeah, I'm not going to say it's it, it look nothing I don't think is needed outside of maybe I, I the big gunfight I I could have stood to at least see that casualties are happening because you know when I talked about this movie being people making bad decisions, here you have a bunch of bandits that would rob you for your shoes, but they want they want their guns, but they're willing to expend untold amount of ammunition to try to get said guns. There's got to be a point where that where it's like a zero sum game, and they're like, all right, we've already used more than we're going to get out of these guys. Why are we doing this? So I, like they're just. If it's to be believable, I mean, I get it that they're not the brightest crayons in the box and everything, but if it's to be believable, I could have used at least, you know, some sort of visible body count that, that, that a battle actually matters in some reasonable way. I mean, I know, uh, uh, what's his name got one in the neck, but it just, you know, you, you just see him just bang, bam, 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 bam. And everybody's just walking around you know, taking, taking very slow cover. And I'm just like, all right, is this really a thing? Is this really happening? Or is it just a bunch of, uh, you know, cap guns making smoke? Yeah, they do mention the value of the guns. Like there's there's a back and forth of uh, these guns are worth $200, which we mm-hmm. get an idea. Okay, that's 
that's somewhat valuable to them. But really, I think it's we kill them, we get their guns, then we can take their mules because that's what the guys think they're going to take in the first place is they're going to take all the mules. We find out that is what they want. When they kill Dobbs, they take the mules. Yeah, but literally there's not a single bandit body that you see at the ground, but the guy can shoot a watch dangling from his hand. It's 1948. You know, I mean, I think Bogart put it well when he said, disappointed the scene couldn't show everything in its graphic glory. Mm. What's wrong with cutting the guy's head off on, on screen? So, I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where if this movie's made later, you do get more blood and death. I did think we got a bandit fall behind one of those trees, but you may be right. I do, I, I do think we saw some people go down in fairness, pride, but I think okay. your point's well taken. When Cody went down, I thought, again, is he knocked out? And there's like, he's got a right. bullet shot through his neck. I'm like, well, that is clearly a lot worse than what I thought. <laughs> so, Just wiggle his arms a little bit. He'll come back. <laughs> so, yeah, up and down <laughs> does wonders for you. <laughs> It's like doing the wave does amazing things to young people. Right. CPR, <laughs> tequila, tequila, and the wave. That's that's where it's at. That's that's medicine. Turn the century. Another one that we covered, by the way, is Asphalt Jungle. And this one, and I shouldn't be shocked because again, great night scenes and great night shots and scoundrels doing all their things is made two years later than this one. That's John Houston too. So we keep going back to Maltese Falcon. That's a lot earlier than this one. That one has Bogar in it, obviously, but uh, it's just this to me. I'm I'm really interested, and in, I want to see a lot more John Houston. To be honest with you, I'm very interested in everything I've seen from him so far. And Maltese Falcon, by the way, was his first movie. And this is this is not very far into his career either. This is just one, two, three. This is his fifth movie, and it's interest. Interestingly enough, just a small side note here: uh, the Maltese Falcon actually got a uh, sequel TV show on AMC right now oh. called uh, called Miss Your Spade, starring Clive Owen. Stuff dreams are made of. Brian is Clive Owen plugs. I do. Oh, like I love. I do I like, like I do like Clive. Let's talk about the wardrobe and makeup here, Chad. This is a sweaty movie. I know Ryan at one point told us the sweatiest decade in movies is the 1970s. I think he said that in the the conversation episode. I think we got to give it back to the 40s. This I don't think I've ever seen somebody seem so dirty and sweaty in a movie as this movie. I mean, come on, it's a, it's a western though. I mean, if you're gonna have guys literally trekking through waterless places it's going to end up being the sweatiest thing you've ever seen i mean watch hidalgo mm, fair yeah i was impressed like bogey's wig is putting in work i had no idea he was bald by this point in time i just thought i was like what is going on with this hair towards the end of the movie it was very stringy it was very just erratic across his head so i thought that was good i couldn't t- tell it was a hairpiece I couldn't either, to be honest with you. I mean, I know uh, I, I read the same thing. He had been taking hormone shots to increase his chances of being more, you know, fertile for his beautiful wife, Lauren Bacall. But uh, he also was an excessive drinker. So which we read about that as well in Casablanca. But he's completely bald. It's, you're right. I, I don't pick up on a wig. I don't have great wig dart, though, in fairness. I'm often quickly deceived by wigs. So. I don't think they're used that much anymore, so your need for that skill is less. I don't know. I feel like they're used a ton. 
aren't they? Every Marvel movie. Chris yeah. Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, not their hair. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, every every day wig. Like, I don't know that I've ever oh, really yeah. noticed the human person. Oh, you mean like you know, like the Mozart wig, like, like where everybody's wearing them because. No, no I think he's no. talking like Bruce Willis made being bald cool, but I knew people growing up that had Jason Statham. Yeah. yeah, now now being bald is cool. It's sexy, but before those movie stars, yeah, I I knew several adults that had hair pieces, and it's just not a thing anymore. Well, thank you, Bruce Willis. Right. I, I think it's going to become very soon that, that I need that I needed that. So you, you paved the way for what, what's coming soon for me. So I, I, I have less hair than when I started this podcast for sure. So <laughs> um, I think I think one of the interesting ones, though, is uh, the to lend authenticity to Walter Houston persuaded John to do this without his false teeth in, which is perfect as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You definitely get the old-timey, down-on-his-luck prospector. Yeah, and by the way, that the man in white, that like that slick, rich guy who who, you know, Bogart is begging from multiple times, it's yes. John Huston himself, the director, popping into this one. And man, I, I we don't actually know what he does, but he 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 clearly looks like he's got plenty of money. I dig that all white that he's in. I, uh, I, I'm always surprised. Uh, there's, there's a great, there's a great Louis CK stand up about how like back in the day, things just cost money, like not a distinguishable amount of money. You just have to have to have money. Like you go into a saloon and you toss a coin on the bar and you're like, you know, let me get a whiskey and a beer and a, you know, shoe from a horse and a bathtub and a woman and a room for the night. And he's like, well, how are you going to pay for it? Ping money. And it's just like, you know, he gets a, he gets a peso from this guy. I know it happens a couple of times. He's getting like a shave and cleaned up and it's just like, things just cost money. No, no, no distinct amount of money, just money. Well, I, I know this much. We, we're living in a time of great inflation currently. So I, I, I know this much. Uh, if you were to go back and watch something from just, Five years ago, you're starting to sit there and go like, man, is that all that cost back then? So, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, 1948, one peso probably does all kinds of stuff for you. Why not? Yeah, 1920s even. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, thank yes. you. Yeah, this movie's made in 48, but it's yeah shot earlier. So Or made, sorry, not shot earlier, but depicting earlier. I dug the windstorm, and I didn't necessarily pick up that they were actually blowing, you know, propellers and stuff they, they actually upgraded to jet engines for to do all the wind for that one so i guess the traditional method was to use propellers to blow actual wind around that seems like you're gonna definitely blow stuff in people's eyes but i love that old movies don't care they have to just this is they have to make it they have to do it so there you yeah. go damage their hearing yeah expose them to dangerous heat yep all of this it's fine as yeah. best as snow there's not much snow to be had here. But... Breathe it in. It's fine. I feel like they might have debated it. Like, <laughs> is there some way we can use asbestos in this movie? How about for the dirt, the, like the gold that's fading away is just asbestos? It's not the smokiest. Or lines of cocaine. 
It's not the smokiest <laughs> movie that we've seen from the forties, by the way. So, I mean, there's smoking, there's like the whole, like, you know, you smoke his stuff and I'll smoke your stuff from the natives and stuff like that. But it's not the smokiest movie. Normally Wait, I, yeah. I think when we go back to the forties and the fifties, I, I, I feel like everybody has a cigarette in their mouth and in every scene at some point, it seems like, but it's not the smokiest movie. I, uh, I just, just while we're on this topic, I've been doing another rewatch of Peaky Blinders and I, there's not a scene in that movie where there is not a cigarette and or a glass of whiskey in someone's hand. I, exactly. I, I, I'm telling you, like beginning to end, it's just drink, smoke, smoke, drink, yeah. drink, drink, smoke, drink, smoke. Dobbs had an excellent point, though. He's like, I've already got some. Why, why can't we just smoke our own? Smoke why our do we head. need to swap? He has like them? a flat cigarette at one point. I was like, how do you even... How does somehow, that work? I mean, it's literally somehow, just like a... I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you're a Dobbs, Chad, but that line just made me feel like that's Chad. Like, that that's such a Chad line of just like, I could see I mean, Chad being like, why don't we just smoke our own instead? <laughs> yeah, this is very impractical. Let's just not. That just so seems like you. I don't know who you are in this. I guess I guess if, if we were the three prospectors, who who are you in this case? I'm probably Bogar, I'm guessing, because I'm... Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I you're, you're 100% Dobbs. Yeah, I'm Dobbs. I, I don't know. Fry seems like a curtain. I does that put me in crazy old timey prospector? I think it does. I think it uh, does. I I'll accept it. Like yeah, I I'm not the rough and tumble sidekick. Fry seems more like after this, curtain. If you could do a jig after this to confirm, but I think I think that's where we are. Are you right? Is that where you're landing? I don't know. I could. Are you curtain? I, I, no, nah, I, I could see myself being more Howard. You know, I've, I've I've done some stuff in my time. End up being a crazy old man in some town, trying to convince <laughs> two two younger guys to go off on some adventure. At last hurrah, only to end up doing some craziness in a you know a witch doctor ceremony and being prey <laughs> idolized by an entire yeah. people. You're yeah, essentially like, C three PO where yeah. yeah, with a bunch of Ewoks, just like. <laughs> Eh, I'm pretty set now. I get. You I know, love that you said see your people when you walk. I get. I get. I, I get. I get three to five meals a day. All, right. all the all the tequila I can drink. I'm fine. You have a nice life, curtain. <laughs> I'm getting decapitated, so I get definitely the bad end of this deal. But I mean, yeah. it, you know, suits me. Suits me. All right. Soundtrack, though. I feel like movie of back in this era, this is a complaint I have often is too big for moments that aren't big enough for the music. Sometimes sometimes gate getting opened ominously. Thank you. You beat me to it. Cause I, 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 I don't know upon rewatches when you know, the gold's going to corrupt them. But my first thought was like, Oh no, something really bad's going to happen. There's going to be a landslide. They're all going to get like sent to the bottom of the hill in some massive disaster. And no, they're just, panning for gold over here and like some there are some times where the music can be a little bit misleading i'm not going to dock it for that that's where we are in the late 1940s with musical scores most of the time and you know they're not all laura laura is a great movie musical score this movie's no laura this movie has big 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 they go big 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 punchy all the time and even when the moment's big, I feel like the music's still too big. So I don't know. I think like those noir movies that are mysterious and have tons of dark shadows and crazy angles. I feel like those distorted feelings are worthwhile there. I feel like here they're a little out of place, but that's my feeling. I don't know about uh, Chad. 
they are definitely trying to manipulate you way too much with music when they could just rein back a little bit. Like, we don't need curtains. He starts to walk away, and it's, to your point, it's bombastically evil. And then he turns back, and it's suddenly, like, uh, Peter and the wolf sprightly do, 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 as he turns back and saves his friend. I'm like, yeah, we get it. He turned from the darkness and went to the light. That you could have had a better transition. I'm with you. I'm not going to dock it. But these movies, sometimes sometimes they fall in love with their theme, and their theme is way too much. I like the theme here, but the moments, especially the sluice gate, when just water comes flowing down, and it, it really is Lord of the Rings, fires of Mount Doom, epicness of evil. I'm like, mm, no, no. <laughs> let's, let's not... Uh, you know, even even more subtle moments like where they have that profound conversation, like we need to put the mountain back as, as this this mountain's been really. Bye, good. mountain. Yeah. Bye, mountain. That aged remarkably well, though, like that feels modern where it's shoehorned in that these guys, they've been ruining something and you just get the one environmentalist. that's like we've got to respect the land and put it back You're like, yeah, that's that's for some checkbox that we needed but no this is the 1940s where we are just exploiting the land altogether so that was refreshing yeah and i love the line where like you know you talk about this mountain as if it's some woman it's like well this mountain's been a lot better to me than any woman i've ever known like <laughs> i was like i was like man that is a good line <laughs> that is funny so um but i mean just like there's moments where i just feel like the music doesn't elevate it like the dialogue does so uh, anyway, I won't belabor that point. Fry, did you want to add any music comments? No, I don't really have anything for the music in this. All right. What do you guys say? We hand out some superlatives. Sounds Ready? good. MVP, Brian, I know it's not Humphrey Bogart, so who is it for you? Uh, I went with Walter Houston, so Howard. Uh, I, I completely agree with Chad. I think he acted circles around Bogart in this movie. All right, Chad, how about you, MVP? Same thing. And I love that the most likable character here gets his dream ending, even though he's a little less rich than he'd prefer to be, but he's found richness in other things. I think the perspective that they gain through this movie is really enjoyable. But to be honest with you, I think the ending is not that disappointing. I think it helps when you've gone through everything and you see that Bogar is a tragic character and you know that upon second viewings something like that won't sit with me as well the first time but then subsequent viewings i just appreciate the poetic nature of how everything wrapped up and i I think i think i would after rewatching this more i think i would be sitting there smiling on my face as they're laughing too so i'm with you Uh, but anyway walter houston's mine by the way as well he's so good he's very captivating when we meet him in the flop house and he's telling everybody that you know about gold he's a captivating character no wonder they want to go on a mission with him and he's such a neat character that he doesn't necessarily want the gold per se he certainly likes the gold but he likes the adventure of the gold he's excited to do this one more time and he has this you know youth to him that is amazing that he's running circles around the other two physically so yeah he's amazing as far as supporting actors go this is one of those supporting roles where it's so good that i almost forgot that he was supporting so I'm with you guys. Best Supporting Actor, which we have to give away now, which I think we kind of did, but uh, Brian. Uh, so I actually went with, because I didn't want to double up on on, on Walter, um, um, Tim Holt. Nice. So, yeah. Curtin. 
I'm right there with Fry. I like the Ernest companion, and he just does a great job kind of bouncing off Dobbs' paranoia. So Tim Holt was my choice, too. Yeah, I really like that he becomes a better person by watching Dobbs become a worse person. <laughs> like, I think there's moments of his facial acting of, like, disbelief of, like, wait, now what? Like, he also has this weird connection initially with Cody's widow. Like, you see it instantly in his mind, like, I'm going to go and, she, and marry this and it, chick. Yeah, and then she has a fruit they ring. voted that they were going to kill him, so I get the heavy feelings of, like, even though they didn't actually... They weren't the ones who were going to kill him, so, you know, but they were going to. That doesn't totally remove your conscience of it, and he voted that, so, yeah. And, yeah, we don't see the picture. I mean, his wife could be hot, so, I mean... Yeah, I love it. Hey, since since we didn't kill him, I better go up and nail his wife and take over his man on the farm. Scarlett Johansson. I mean, this is a logical thing to do. He has this image in his mind that this is the most beautiful woman that's just looking for a man like him to take care of her, and I hope that's not the case at all. I hope she's literally Shrek, like in personality (laughs) (laughs) appearance. My. I'm going to follow suit here. It's a clean sweep. Tim Holt as well. For all the reasons that you guys said. Hidden gem. Brian. Um, I, so I know we've mentioned it a couple of times, but uh, I thought it was really cool that the director was, was Howard's son. I just, I like the family connection here. Yeah. So the man in the white suit there. Yep. Yeah. Great choice there. John Houston himself. Chad, how about you? I'm three for three with Brian, so I'm going to change it up. Bruce Bennett's Cody. I kind of wish we had more time with him because I really, I love that dynamic that he injected into the group. His on-screen presence for the brief time that he's there is definitely good. So I'm with you. So that's a great choice. I also had been going with John Houston, so I would have been replicating both of you step for step. So I'm just going to be different as well. And I'm going to say the guy who plays Gold Hat. I really like him. Or he was fun. The lead bandito, if you will. You know, Gold Hat is what he's billed as on the cast here. So I'm going to go with Alfonso Bedoya. And I think he's a really fun scoundrel. I kind of want a prequel movie of just him being an antagonist to another person out west in Mexico because he's a good villain and I could have spent more time with him on screen. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Recast. If you had to recast somebody else and put somebody else in their place, Brian, what are you doing with Humphrey Bogart's part? Um, I'm thinking like Christopher Lee. He would have been in his 20s in this film, so maybe not quite old enough to, or at least for the for the picture that we see Bogart. Um, but I think a 20 year old Christopher Lee would play slowly going mad very well. He can does. He do, can he do cowboy? I think he could do anything, but putting an Englishman into a Western for some while always feels a little bit funny to me, but there you have it. Yeah. I'll go with it. He's a good actor. Why not? Let's trust him. Not English, but Russell Crowe in 310 to Yuma. He did a good job. Uh, That's fair. That's, that's fair. Yeah. I feel like Australia is a little more like the Western version of an, of an Englishman. I think Dustin said that at one point and I was like, yeah, sure. I buy that. Like it's a rougher version of a, uh, of an Englishman to some yes, degree. So, everything there is trying to kill you. I'm stride for stride with Fry here. I am recasting Humphrey Bogart as well. His style just kind of grated on me. So I went with Gregory Peck. 
I feel like Gregory Peck could do a mm. subdued descent into madness. He's an excellent and, actor. Yeah, he's great. Yes. Yeah, he could be pretty intimidating too. When he's I was gonna say physically, he's a larger dude. So I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I have to physically get somebody larger to play Curtin so that they're not totally disproportionately physically. You know, like you don't want to necessarily have Bogart's character or Dobbs be the biggest bully on the mount necessarily. So interesting. I did not go after Bogart. I don't have any of the complaints that you guys do. I actually really like Bogart and all the stuff he's doing here. I didn't give him any superlatives, but I just, I was really happy with him. I'm going to be the apologist for him. I like the guy who played Cody, as you guys have mentioned, Bennett, I think it was, mm-hmm. but yes. I'm going to go with Burt Lancaster here. Okay. So, so we saw him in the killers, which was 1946, just two years before this. So we're going to get closer to that Burt Lancaster than we did like when we covered the professionals in 1966. He definitely has done cowboy well. And I think he's, he's also just somebody who I think would be a good person to, to do this um, guy writing in, you know, from town kind of thing. So I'm going to go Burt Lancaster. I considered him for bogey's part. So yeah, that's a good choice. Best shot, which actually there are several when I think about, which is why I kind of want to watch this again, but Brian, I kind of like the view of, you know, when he first meets Kurt and he's walking up and it's just two guys down on their luck sitting on park benches or sleeping on park benches. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Chad, how about you? What's your best shot? Are you going to finally diverge from Brian? Yes. I'm finally breaking stride here. Mm-hmm. When Dobbs is completely losing his stuff and he has this really menacing laugh around a campfire during an argument with Curtin, and there's this great kind of pan out shot as they say, bet you'll fall asleep first and the two men and it's just like the world's most uncomfortable shot of curtain and this menacing evil on Dobbs. so it's a good laugh too by the way and that's yes it is a great villain laugh i was gonna say that that's a total horror guy pick because i was scared in that scene i was like i have gone from becoming uncomfortable and paranoid to like i'm scared for curtain at this point we didn't get the payoff though i don't know which one fell asleep first i'm guessing Dobbs because curtain lived through that night but we don't get a payoff. Well, mine's going to be when Dobbs drinks out of a muddy puddle in the yeah. desert. So thirsty. We see in the reflection as the water slows to settle, there's a reflection of one of the banditos staring down at him threateningly. It's a great shot. And another one of those chapter turns. Like you can almost picture these chapters in the book being conveyed in these turns in the movie. And boy, I, I this this is just one of those good ones. So there were times when the editing was a little abrupt, like we weren't doing something. And I actually rewound thinking like, did I miss something? Like, Oh, we're, we're shooting in town now. You know, he left the mountain when curtain went into town. I was like, did I miss something? And I'm, I'm to some degree, I'm not sure that I would cut anything, Chad, because there's some moments where if anything, I felt like the editing felt a tad bit abrupt. So anyway, this is one of the best instances of that editing of like, man, that's really good. Good shot. Good cinematography. Poignantly placed. Best scene. Why don't, you, why don't we go Chad? Because Brian keeps stealing your thunder. I think it's, even though I made fun of the letter, it's learning who Cody was, learning about his wife, learning about his kid. And then you see all the different reactions. Dobbs is just like, more for us. While Curtin and Howard are both, hey, give a portion of mine for his wife to support his kid. So I think even in his death, he is 
further driving a wedge in this dynamic. And it's really the turning point for Curtin of, I don't want to be Dobbs. I don't want to be this dude. I want to potentially go and meet this wife and the picture in my head. Well, I, I think uh, you guys didn't, it didn't seem as funny to me, but now I kind of just want to see exaggerating. My blazing saddles hat has gone on for reading all the things. It was just like, all the other wonderful things that he's done is like, please come home and take care of your sick mother. And you know, the, the polio like clinic that you run in your spare yes. time and, you know, and the church that you help build for all the children. And like, you know, just like, I, I just really want to dump on and keep going like with all the wonderful things that he's doing. <laughs> so, um, make him a mother Teresa character. Go for it. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Uh, Brian, best scene. I'm going to go with the montage of them basically starting to get their, their gold prospecting going. It's the uh, setting up their uh, luge, the mining, the just getting, basically getting down to work and actually finding that they've, they've struck gold and giving you some sort of payoff that things are kind of going to turn around for them. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun part of the movie. Certainly the dance that was part of the, like, you know, you didn't even realize you had found gold. You idiots dance was so good yes um mine is going to be the flop house where we meet howard for the first time i alluded to how captivated i was by this character and i was so glad when we were watching this movie that this wasn't just a guy who said something that then led these two guys to go out and do this on their own i it's a great introduction for a great character with a great acting performance so i i found that whole the foreshadowing in that scene to be very powerful and really important. So, so tons of charisma there. Best wardrobe or makeup moment. Brian. Maybe, uh, maybe the, the gentleman they end up working over to get their hard earned money has that, uh, dapper, uh, almost kind of Cuban esque look to his suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mr. McCormick has some, has some swagger to it, but yeah, I, I didn't have anything that I was just like, oh, I'm dying to talk about this. See, I'm a hat guy and I love gold hats sombrero because it's got a chunk out of it. And for whatever reason, that just makes it funnier to me. Like he's a funny dude and having a big piece of your sombrero just missing makes him more comical. Well, didn't they, did... they, they shot a hole in it, didn't they? It was before that. Like when he yeah. first meets them, he's got a chunk out of it. My best wardrobe has to be what John Houston's wearing. It's just, it's so, it's, it's you know, the man in white, the Colonel Sanders look that he's got going on there. Like it's, it, it, it's, it's striking. So it, you can tell he's got some pesos to spare on this one. And I love the line when he hands it over to him. And he's like, can you spare a few, few American, do- you know, can you stick an American to, for a meal? And he says, for such an, an for such impudence, you never came my way. Earlier this afternoon, I gave you money. While I was having my shoes polished, I gave you more money. And now you put the bite on me again. Do me a favor, will you? Go occasionally to somebody else. It's beginning to get tiresome. And I love it when he puts another peso in his hand. He says, just make sure you don't forget your promise. Here's another peso. Uh, that was just a great character he wrote for himself there. So It's a phrase you don't use anymore. You put the bite, put on, the bite on me. You put the bite. Stop putting the See, bite on me. That does seem so bogey. Like I just, I, I, I like, I don't know. That's a, uh, I like that. All right. Change one thing, Brian. And it can't be. Um, okay. Um, I, I could not stand 
the reaction to Dobbs tossing the repayment that Curtin offers him. Not oh, only yeah. does he not, not only does he not take it, he, t- he like dumps it in or toward the fire and yep. no one, no one reacts like that's several hundred dollars that he just <laughs> dumps at, out. At that point, he's putting his friendship and his ability to work in as a company here to ahead of them. That's, that's really important. Though. He got accused of being a hog and that's just what you do. He yeah. just tosses it. Right. <laughs> just I don't like being called a hog. That's all. I, you could have been like, "I ah, don't, don't call me a hog." Here, don't. I mean, that that's sweat. That's sweat. You just dumped out. That's probably two days' work. You just dumped yeah. out into the fire. I'm just like, no one reacted to it at all, and I was like, "What?" It it does hurt when the banditos don't realize that that's gold, and they just like cut open the burlap sacks, yeah. and like it just like falls out on the ground, and just like. You just threw gold on the ground and a hundred grand in a time where that would have been, you know, the, the that amount is staggering. Gold had us not a nice dude, but there's part of me that finds it at least moderately more appealing. Like if gold hat at least gets the money, he spends it in town and it gets recirculated and all that stuff. It will go on and help other people. But if it just goes back into the ground, it's like, you know, it's, it's one of those like, Oh, that's a gut punch, which is why. No, dude, you just created a cartel. You just funded a cartel in the 1920s. And it's a cartel of morons. I mean, right. there's the IQs in this movie are just staggeringly low. I don't think we're dealing with smart characters. Though, no, no. They had no. Every, I, just about everybody with legitimate screen time in this film is not smart. Fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All right. Uh, Chad, change one thing. I don't think we need the execution scene of Gold Hat and his gang. Like Cody goes into great detail, the efficiency of the Mexican government of what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I, re- I really enjoy him walking back to get his sombrero just to be shot in the sombrero yeah. rolls off. Like, I, don't know, I, I was, did like that. I was all right with that. <laughs> Let me get my hat. All right. <laughs> so bam. We, we wrestle once, right? You need the head rolling machete scene. I just like the hat rolling out. It's like yeah, he yeah. literally walked over to get the hat just so it could roll right back over. That's that's kind of amusing. <laughs> it's if it's no longer that's what the federales do, I would not dig my own hole. It's just like that's a rough way to go out on the house. Yeah. Like you can shoot me now, but I'm not gonna dig for you. Guys. They're not gonna shoot you in the face if you don't do that. They're gonna yeah, shoot, shoot you about you seventeen. Or, yeah. They'll shoot you in the stomach or something, let you bleed out. The knees, mm. like it's worse for you. These are not nice people. And that compliance. is not nice. You're, you're right. That is compelling. That is not nice. Yeah, Russell's going to learn by losing a few fingers. And you know what? Face. I just hate authority, like, you know, punishing me so much. I'm probably going to take the slow bleed out on the stomach and then, like, you know, laugh at him on the way. I was like, ah, I didn't dig the hole. Yeah, so. that'll, that'll show him when they shoot you in the junk. No, no. Uh, well, good point. So, yeah. <laughs> Russell's dying to prove a point. Yeah. I'm digging that hole. I'm taking the stomach shot. That's that's what I'm doing. So mm-hmm. my change one thing is I'm not sure I want Dobbs to be dead. I think it, I think watching him bitter and unhappy and, you know, watching the other two okay with what they lost, whereas he's depressed or I, I'm not sure I totally want him out of the picture. So I do want a decapitation scene added, by the way. So that's a change one thing that's on a smaller scale. But I'm not positive killing Dobbs is the right move. Am I am I way off base with this? Who are you decapitating then? No, I'm just saying like I like decapitating him as another alternative, like and putting that keeping that in the movie. But I'm just saying like 
in a different eating your cake and having it too. I want him to be alive, but also decapitated. No, no, it's it's uh, which kind of cake do I want to eat? They're both they're both appealing cakes. I, I, I want the I want, <laughs> I want the decapitation cake and the headless cake and the yeah, happy cake. Exactly, and from the other cat from the other cake, the humbled, depressed, you know, you know, humbled cake. Yeah, humble pie. That there you go. That's what we need. That's a dude that attempted murder. No, I don't want a happy ending. Well, maybe the Fatarellis get him or something for some reason. I don't know. Maybe he goes another step below it. Illegal prospecting. There you go. Straight to jail. I don't know. Best quote, Brian. Uh, I went, uh, hey, you fellas, how about some beans? You want some beans? Going through some rough country tomorrow. Better have some beans. (laughs) <laughs> and then, then he then he proceeds to play his harmonica like as loudly as possible like, as they're trying to sleep like just <laughs> i can't not see the blazing saddles farting scene after that so it's so ingrained yeah. in me at this point so uh chad how about your best quote ah as long as there's no fine the noble brotherhood will last but when the piles of gold begin to grow that's when the trouble starts oh that's so good that's so good that, that was mine too by the way that's really good I, I, to be different, I will pick when Howard says water's precious. Sometimes it may be more precious than gold. I Three like, Howard quotes. Yeah. Yeah. I do like fries, though. Like that dude. You I would have shot him right. Hey, boys. Would, the it harmonica. Might, like I would have shot him right in the face. Everyone's just no selling this harmonica playing. And, am I the only one who thinks the badges the quote has somehow culturally grown to be bigger than it actually was? Like, yes. I, I mean, I felt like now that we yes. go back to the genesis of what it was, I feel like it's better. The playoffs of it are better than the actual first meeting of it. I could have watched this movie and had you not told me that's a great quote, I wouldn't get out of there saying like badges. Like, I, I don't think I would have done that. So it's a funny quote. I, I get it. It's funny. And the his inflection on it. He's good. Yes, he is good for sure. Um, I also really like that moment. Where it was like, you're trailing. Are you sure he was trailing you? Absolutely. How come? Because there he is. Right. I love that. All right. We've come full circle on a scale of half star to five stars with half star intervals. Brian, what are you giving this movie? I unfortunately gave this one a two, um, but I will, I'll, I'll caveat it slightly that uh, between now and when we do end of the year ratings, I'm going to revisit this again. And, and and give it another swing, so I wouldn't be shocked if I bump up that thought a little higher. Come EOY. Yeah! Wow! Yeah! Watch it after one of the comedies that make you watch. Oh man, <laughs> He's, it's like Ben Stiller. Okay, here you go. You're gonna have a hard time with the lady killers, I think. Mm, yeah. All right, Chad. Maybe. How about you? Oh, man. On a five-star scale, what are you doing? This doesn't feel great immediately after Brian. I went five stars. This feels self-congratulatory. It's like, yay, me. I picked a movie I liked five stars. That doesn't feel great, (laughs) especially when Brian's like two stars. But yeah, I went five stars. I really enjoyed it, even though Humphrey Bogart, I think, was the wrong choice for the part. It It didn't deter me from enjoying this movie. Went back a second time, enjoyed it a whole lot more. So it gets better every rewatch. Three star swing there. That's pretty. That's yeah, pretty big. That's, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> I'm closer to you, 
Chad, I'm at 4.5. And I do believe that with for this is a movie I want to rewatch. I want to share this with other people. I suspect with growth and time, this one could go higher. I really enjoyed studying it. And I thought so much is going right here. This is a 4.5 for me, but I really like it. And totally could see this being coming. Like if you if you come back to me at the end of the year, or if you talk to me in five years, this could just grow in my head to becoming five stars, which is, it's hard for me to just already write out, give a five star sometimes. But this time, I think this one has the makings of becoming one, if that makes sense. So we got to pick a movie for next time. Somebody want to help me out here? Sure. Let's go. We got the 1940s noir Oscar nominations here. We're into Oscar season. So these are all Oscar. Sorry. These are all noir movies that were nominated for Oscars. Option one, Mildred Pierce from 1945, a hardworking mother, inches towards disaster. She divorces her husband and starts a successful restaurant business to support her spoiled daughter. Option two, The Third Man from 1949, pulp novelist. Holly Martens travels to a shadowy post-war Vienna only to find himself investigating the mysterious death of an old friend, Harry Lyme. And option three, Crossfire from 1947. A man is murdered, apparently, by one of a group of demobilized soldiers he met in a bar. But which one and why? Well, the third man has Orson Welles, so I am going to pick the Orson Welles movie that isn't Citizen Kane. Side note, Mildred Pierce is the one that beat out... Leave her to heaven for Gene Tierney's best actress that year. Mm, so, okay. yeah. Thank you both for doing this. This is a blast. And thank you all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. So support us. Subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio. And give us a like on Facebook, Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support our show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian? In your crowd, a polite no is enough. In mine, it isn't. The only kind of no they understand is from the end of a gun. <laughs>